Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Last week, Pastor Mel talked about the lie that says, I am what I have. And this week, I want to talk to you about this lie, and that is, I am what I do. Uh, Before we get there, though, Pastor Mel, during our last series, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, said that I was the cardigan pastor, so I didn't want to let you down. So here here I am. Um, But no, so we're going to be talking about I am what I do. Several years ago, before I came on staff at Summit Church, and I've been here almost seven years now. That's incredible. Um, But that's a side note. Um, But uh, before I came on staff here, we were serving at a church in the city where we lived. And I had on the worship team there was a saxophone player. And we'll call him Bart. His name's not really Bart, but, you know, how they used to change the names to protect the innocent. We'll do that today. Um, But so this guy on my worship worship team, he was an incredibly gifted player. Uh, In fact, he makes his living still as a jazz musician and and plays and gigs around the city and could jump up on the stage with the team at any time without any rehearsal and just had the kind of ear he could just jump in and play and it would fit and sound incredible. Just a great musician. Uh, But we were in kind of a transition period as a church. Um, We were adding a Saturday night service uh, and and we so it was a lot like what we have here. We had one service on Saturday night and two on Sunday morning. And so as part of that transition, I was moving our rehearsal time to a Thursday evening. And so the band would come on Thursday night, and we would practice and prepare for the weekend. Uh, and Bart didn't like that at all. He did not want to have to rehearse. He didn't want to have to show up on an extra night on a Thursday night. And so... Um, I said, well, unfortunately, if you're not able to do that, then I'm not going to be able to to have you serve on the weekends. I don't think it's fair to the rest of the team for me to require them to be here on an extra night in order to serve and then give you a pass. And I said, I hope that you understand, man, it doesn't have anything to do with your ability. But if if you're not willing to do that, then then I'm not going to have a place for you. He was not happy with me. Uh, in fact, he went straight to the senior pastor, which is one of the joys of being on staff at a church. When people get angry with you, they run to the pastor. Um, so it's, it's awesome. I love it so much. Um, but anyway, uh, my, my pastor, uh, he had my back, right? And so he told Bart the same thing that I had told him. Well, hey, man, look, if you're unable or unwilling to to do that, to be there on Thursday evenings, then you're not going to be able to play on the weekend. And he told him, he's like, look, it's, it's about way more than rehearsal, right? It's about way more than the music. It's about community and about honoring the team around you and about, you know, growing together. And so, you know, it's, it's really a part of the life of the church. And so we need you to do that. And Bart was still unwilling to do that. And the pastor said, but hey, look, you got a lot more to offer to the church than just being a saxophone player. So if you don't want to find, you know, you could find a different way and a different place to serve. And Bart was not okay with that. In fact, he said, no, I, that, if I can't do that, if I can't play the saxophone, then I can't, I, 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 I don't have anything to give. And the pastor said, well, I mean, man, I don't, I don't think that that's true. I think that you have a lot more to offer, but it, what would you do if tomorrow you weren't able to play the saxophone anymore? If something happened and you couldn't play? And he looked at my pastor, and in all sincerity, he said, 
I'd put a gun in my mouth. Because he had bought into this lie that I am what I do. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't, that's not me. But it's rampant in our culture. And maybe we don't believe it to that kind of depth. Maybe if tomorrow you weren't able to do what you're doing right now, you wouldn't put a gun in your mouth. But you still have a sense that your identity and your value and your worth is based in that thing. Let me, let me show you that, that it's there more than you might think. When you meet someone for the very first time, what is the first question, if not one of the first questions, right? If it's not one of the first, you know, anyway, you know the question, right? Every time you meet somebody, you go, hey, what do you do? What do you do? Right? And immediately, the answer to that question is super important, right? The answer to that question, I mean, the whole basis of your relationship with that person could rest on that question. Right? Because if they answer it and, and the, the answer is like really super like important, right? Then either we may go, this is the person I need to hang out with, or we automatically go, this isn't going to happen. I'm not cool enough for that. <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe, maybe sometimes when you meet people, you don't really want to tell them what you do because I'm just whatever, right? And so this lie sneaks into our sense of who we are and, we, uh, and it, it can become a stumbling block for us, become a problem for us. And there are a couple of different ways that that happens. And so I want to talk to you about that this morning. And we're going to look at a guy in scripture named Gideon. And this is in Judges chapter 6. And maybe you're familiar with this story. Maybe you're not. Um, but we're going to jump into it. So Judges chapter 6 verses 11 through 16. And here's what happens. So it says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah. Uh, he's not in a tree at Oprah's house, right? It's not like, it's a different Oprah. Um, <laughs> But I do think it's kind of cool that the angel just kind of goes and like sits under a tree and like waits, waits for Gideon to show up. I don't, I don't know. There's something about that. Um, maybe it's that God is there before we ever get there. But anyway, um, so the angel sits underneath the tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiazer. And Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. So a little background here. The Midianites were uh, a warring tribes that lived on the borders of Israel, and they would send raiding parties into Israel. And so they would sack the town, take all the food, uh, take their livestock, you know, their, their, and go and take it back to Midian. And so rather than having to farm for themselves, they would just come and take the food from Israel and, you know, and then go raid somebody else later. It was like, that's how they made their living. Um, but so Gideon is in the wine press. And so what that is, there's a, a pit. They would pour all the grapes in the pit and then stomp the grapes, you know, that kind of thing. But Gideon's down there with the wheat, threshing the wheat down inside the wine press so that he can hide from the Midianites and hopefully keep some food for his family. And avoid a conflict. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. I think it's important that we understand that. He's trying to avoid a conflict. Uh, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, 
If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? And didn't they say the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. There's a whole other sermon there, but we're not going to go there this morning. Um, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But, Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So, it's an interesting thing. Gideon's name actually means one who cuts down. And it was used to refer to warriors, right? One who cuts down his enemies, A great hero, a mighty warrior. And so when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, mighty hero, Gideon would have known exactly what he was talking about. But the name Gideon, the name that one who cuts down can also mean like the guy who's out there cutting down the wheat and threshing it in the wine press. And so when the Lord comes to Gideon, when the angel comes to Gideon, he identifies Gideon as mighty hero, but Gideon identifies himself as farmer of wheat. Don't you see me down here in the wine press chopping this and threshing the wheat? By the way, I'm in this hole because I don't want to fight. I'm in this hole because I'm afraid. I'm in this hole because I am farmer, not warrior. So don't come around here telling me who I am. I know who I am. And I am not what you think I am. And there are a lot of us that we fall on this side of this spectrum. We underestimate our value. We underestimate who we are and who God has called us to be because we found our identity in what we do. And if we don't think that what we do is all that important, then we diminish ourselves and we diminish our role. And really, the the greater sin in all of this is that we diminish the God who wants to use us in extraordinary ways. But the angel won't take no for an answer. And so he tells Gideon, no, dude, I know who you are. This is my paraphrase, by the way. Uh, I know who you are. Mighty hero, mighty warrior, and God is with you. He just won't take no for an answer. And so Gideon, you know, he, he's, he's trying to get out of it still. But, but he knows that God's calling him, right? And so he says, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'll tell you what. I'm going to throw this sheepskin out here on the ground tomorrow morning. Um, I want the grass around it to be wet and the sheepskin to be dry. If that happens, I'm your man. Of course, the next morning, the ground around the the fleece is, is wet and the fleece is dry. And so Gideon goes, best two out of three. And he says, all right, all right, let's, let's flip it. Let's flip it, all right? So tomorrow, I want the ground around it to be dry and the fleece to be wet. The angel goes, deal. Next morning, sure enough, the ground is dry and the fleece is wet. All of this to say, there comes a point where Gideon submits and surrenders and says, okay, God, if you want me to do this, I'll do it. 
And so to his credit, he amasses an army and he gets all these men together. He builds an altar at Oprah. The Lord instructs him to build an altar. So he builds the altar and he calls God's people to war. And the people show up and they're ready to go out. And there's 30,000 men that show up. And God goes, too many. Now the crazy thing is they were facing an army of about 100,000 people. But God goes, 30,000, that's too many. So they go through a round of cuts, right? And Gideon goes, if you're scared, go home. Because, I mean, that's what God told him to do. It wasn't like Gideon just goes, if you're scared, get out of here, you know. Uh, get on. But um, that's how they said it where I grew up. Get. But anyway, uh, <laughs> where did that come from? Um, so 30,000. And he says, if any of you are scared, go home. All of a sudden, they're left with 3,000 guys against an army of 100,000. And God still goes, too many. He said, if I, if I do it with 3,000, they're still going to think that they did it. So they go through another round of cuts, and they'll cut to the chase, and then it's 300 men. And with 300 men, God defeats an army of 100,000. You'd think that would be humbling, right? Go to Judges chapter 8. We're going to look at the flip side of this coin. Gideon finds himself on both sides of it. Poor Gideon. Uh, we're, we're not much smarter. Um, Gideon, uh, Gideon, Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 27, it says this. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. So they, they, this great victory comes, and the people go, Gideon, you can be the king. We want to make you the king. You can rule over us. You're the, you're the man. And to his credit, look at this, though. Gideon replied, I will not rule over you. Man, he's doing so good. Stop right there. Just stop there, Gideon. I will not rule over you, nor will my son. So far, so good. We're still, we're doing good. We're doing good, Giddy, right? And he said, the Lord will rule over you. Man, he's, he's saying all the right things. And then we get to this word. However. So and he said, he's, all of a sudden there's a but, right? I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, but... I, uh, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. That's kind of a side, like the people that, you know, they, these guys wore earrings, that's how this happened. I don't, I don't know why we need that, but anyway. Um, gladly, they replied, so the people are happy to do this, right? They're happy to comply with, with Gideon. They spread out a cloak, and each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder, and the weight of the gold earrings uh, was 43 pounds. It's about how many my wife has. Uh, <laughs> the weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and the pendants and the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian or the chains around the necks of their camels. It's a pretty big haul. That's what they're trying to tell us, right? So Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Oprah, his hometown. Now, God had instructed him to build an altar one time 
right? This is a special occasion. You're going to build an altar here and you're going to rally the people. But Gideon goes ahead and after this, he's, got, he's going to build a sacred ephod. He builds it and puts it in Oprah, his hometown, and listen to this. But soon, all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. So there's one side of this coin where we underestimate ourselves because of the things that we do. And there's the other side, which is when we really overestimate ourselves based on the things that we do. And Gideon finds himself in both places, right? Before this, he's like, no, I'm not qualified. I can't do this. And then God goes to great lengths, right? To win a victory for Israel and to great lengths to show that it wasn't Gideon that did it. And Gideon takes the credit anyway, 300 guys beat 100,000 and Gideon goes, I am awesome. (laughs) And it became a great trap for Gideon and for his family. And not only a trap for him and his family, a stumbling block for Israel because instead of worshiping the Lord, instead of giving their honor to God, instead instead of honoring the Lord and worshiping him in the way that he prescribed, here they find themselves at Oprah worshiping the shrine that Gideon built. You see, when we allow pride of accomplishment to creep in, we make an idol out of what we do and we take glory that belongs to God. And so there's, like I said, there's this one side of the coin where we undervalue ourselves based on what we do and there's this other side of the coin where we overvalue ourselves based on what we do and I think at the end of the day whether whatever side of the coin that we're on what we do is that we settle for fitting in instead of belonging we settle for fitting in instead of belonging look at this quote from Brene Brown uh, Brene Brown is a she's a, a professor she taught at the University of Houston the University of Texas uh, and she's a researcher she researches shame and the effects of shame on people it's a, it's really interesting stuff um, but anyway she says this in talking about her research she says one of the biggest pri- surprises in this research was learning that fitting in and belonging are not the same thing you probably know this from your experience in high school Right? Uh, You did things to fit in, but there was that nagging sense inside of you that you couldn't really be yourself or these people won't like you. You fit in, but you didn't belong. In fact, fitting in is one of the greatest barriers to belonging. Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And most of us go through our life just trying to fit in. But the Lord says to us and invites us into his family to belong. And those are really different things. And one of them is based on this contractual relationship. I'll give you an example. If I hire someone to do a job and they fail to meet the requirements of the job, what happens? They lose the job. They don't fit in anymore. On the other hand, if I ask my children to do something at home, 
and they fail to meet the requirements, there may be consequences for that action. There will be discipline. There will be a, a conversation to be had. There will be a redirection. But they do not lose their place or standing in the family. They do not have to question whether or not I love them or whether or not they will still be my child because they belong. They don't have to try and fit in. They are a part. But many of us continue to live our lives trying to fit in. And some of us, have, man, you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're still just trying to fit in. And there are others of you who sit here this morning who have never given your life to Jesus because you don't think you can fit in. Can I tell you today that the Lord invites you as a child, as a son or a daughter who does not have to question their relationship to him or their position you simply belong because he has said you are mine. Maybe you look at that quote and there are some of you who are going, but doesn't God want me to change? Can I tell you that actually the answer to that is no. You're going, maybe you're looking at me sideways now. Let me explain. There are behaviors or ways of living and being in the world that God asks us to abandon for our good and for the good of those around us. There are, there are things that I want for my children because I see life from a different perspective than they do. I see life from the, the vantage point of experience and hopefully wisdom, right? And so I can help them and I can, I, can, I can steer them into a direction that I believe is going to be for their best good and for their success and for their greatest, right? That doesn't mean I'm asking them to change who they are. I want them to be exactly who they are and know that I love them exactly as they are and that will never change. I tell my girls all the time, there's nothing that you could do that will make me love you any less than you, I do right now. And there's nothing that you can do that will make me lo love you any more than I do right now. I will always love you. That's exactly what our Heavenly Father says to us. But there are so many of us who, who live our life and our relationship with God in a performance-based kind of thing. And we believe that it's what we do that matters. It's what we do that will make him love us. Or it's what we do that will make him not love us anymore. And, you know, and we live under this kind of compulsive and oppressive and weighty thing where we cannot love our Father and receive the love that he has for us because we feel disqualified. Or maybe you feel really qualified and really it's your pride that's keeping you from experiencing real relationship with Jesus. What the Lord invites us to is to live into our true selves. The, the self that we experience a lot of the time is, is really a false self because it's built on lies. Right? It's built on these kinds of notions that I, I am what I do. So in, as a result, we don't live into the fullness and the truth of who God's created us to be. Henry Nouwen, uh, he, he always talked about it in those terms, the sense of the false self and the true self. And he said this, he said, the secular or false self is the self that is fabricated. As Thomas Merton says, by social compulsions. 
Compulsive is indeed the best adjective for the false self. It points to the need for ongoing and increasing affirmation. Who am I? I am the person or the one who is liked and praised and admired, disliked, hated, or despised. If being busy is a good thing, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing many people proves my importance, I will have to make the necessary contacts. The compulsion manifests itself in the lurking fear of failing and the steady urge to prevent this by gathering more of the same. More work, more money, more friends. You could probably simplify it with this statement. If I can just do blank, then I will be complete. Right? If I can just get that promotion, I, then I'll be I'll be good. If I could just marry that person, then I'll be all right. If I can just do whatever, right, then I will be. But, but it never works. And that's because the deepest longings of our soul were created only to be satisfied by Jesus. There are three dangers of allowing what we do to define our identity. I want to go through them real quickly before we close today. The first one is this. What you do can change tomorrow. So when you build your identity on what you do, this is the danger. Right? Like, like my friend Bart from the, the story that I told at the beginning. Tomorrow, it could change. What would you do? How do you respond? And man, we see this all the time. Like you see athletes who perform at a high level and compete at a high level, uh, uh, maybe professional athletes, and then they retire and they don't know who they are anymore because their whole life's been built on this game and their sense of identity is there and their sense of who they are is there and then when that's gone, they don't know what to do. Many of them turn to drugs or alcohol or there have been even cases of guys committing suicide because they just didn't know what to do with themselves anymore. Or you see it maybe in a, a person who's invested their whole life in being a parent. And their children inevitably grow up and move out and begin to do things on their own. And they lose their moorings. They lose their sense of who they are. Can I tell you this today? There will come a time, whether it is tomorrow or whether it is years from now, when none of us will be doing what we are doing right now. There will come a time when my abilities will diminish and I'll no longer be able to sing in the same way that I do or play the guitar in the same way that I do. There will come a time when I, when I physically may not even be capable of standing and doing what I'm doing right now. And if my sense of who I am and my sense of my identity is built on that, then I'm on thin ice. And I'm in danger of losing my, myself and my direction and who I am because I've built it on a lie. So danger number one is that what we do can change tomorrow. James chapter four, verses 13 through 16 says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. So that's danger number one. Danger number two is this. Um, 
What you do didn't get you here. What you do did not get you here. Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? So what Paul is saying here is like, look, were you saved because you kept the law? And then he answers his own question. Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. You see, none of the things that I have done, none of the things that you did, gained you access into this family. Gained you access into the kingdom of God. It was Jesus and Jesus alone and the work that he did. And so when we build our lives on the thing that we do, what we, the danger that we have is forgetting that what we do didn't get us here. And trampling on the grace of God. And then number three, what you do will never be enough. What you do will never be enough. You guys remember, uh, remember Schindler's List? You remember that scene at the end of the movie? Um, so if you haven't seen the movie, um, Schindler uh, was a German who rescued Jews during World War II from the Nazis. And he saved a lot of lives. But at the end of the, at the, end of the movie, he's standing there and all these people that he saved are there. And all he can think is, I could have done more. I could have done more. And he looks at the ring that he has on his hand. And he goes, this, this ring would have saved three more people. I could, I, could have, I could have given away this. I could have done this. I could have, sold, you know, I could, there's, I could have done more. But no matter how much he had done, there would have been more people to save. And that's an incomplete picture of what the kingdom of God is like. But the fact of the matter remains that none of us can get there on our merits. None of us can get there on our good works. In fact, the scripture says that if we've broken one part of the law, we've broken all of it. And so even if I could, starting today, live without sin for the rest of my natural born days, I've already missed it. Wait, like, right, you know what I mean? And here's the thing, like, even if I do good for really for one day, like, man, I really nail it. Like, I am killing the game for a whole day. I don't, I don't say anything about that guy that cut me off in traffic or, or you know, whatever. You, know, you, you understand what I'm saying. I feel like I've got, you know, the world by the tail. At the end of that day, inevitably, I'll go, man, I did good today. Pride. Blew it. <laughs> right? Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, and we'll, we'll wrap up. It says this, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, so when we come to God and go, look what, look what I did. They are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. The very best that you and I have to offer to God, the scripture says, is filthy rags. And that's, that's not because God is, is hard, but he's holy. 
He is perfectly pure and righteous and holy and just. And the scriptures say that no sin can enter his presence. And that disqualifies every one of us. Every one of us. What we do cannot get us there because the, the mark is perfection. Jesus talked about people who built their lives on what they do. Look at this. This is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. I think it's interesting that they say in your name because in your name is not the same thing as for you. In your name is not the same thing as, Lord, I gave my life because I love you. Because you gave your life for me. In your name is, Lord, we deserve this because look what we did. So they'll say to me, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we perform many miracles in your name and then look at the tragedy. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. God, God is not invested in what you can do. And that's not to say that there aren't things that we should do. And I'll, in fact, I'll read a portion of scripture in just a second about that very thing. But again, because, we, because he calls to us and invites us as a father, it's not about what we can do. It's just about who we are in loving him and being in relationship with him. And maybe that wasn't, maybe that wasn't the experience that you had with your parents. Maybe you identify with God on this transactional kind of performative kind of basis because that's the thing that you grew up in, either at your home or in your church. Like I know I grew up in an environment where I felt like I had to perform for God all the time. Pastor Mel talks about going to the movies and being afraid that if God came back while he was at the movie that he would go to hell because that's what he'd been taught. But there are a lot of us who identify with the Lord in that way. But if you're a parent here this morning, you understand Just being with your child is worth more than anything they could ever do. And the Lord wants you to know and wants us to understand this morning that it is not about what we have to offer him because you, you, you can't enhance the value of the most valuable thing in the universe. C.S. Lewis tells a story. Um, there was a 90s Christian man named after it, Sixpence, none the richer. Um, but he tells a story about a, a man who's got a little, he's got a daughter and it's his birthday. 
And the daughter wants to buy him a gift, but she doesn't have any money. She goes to her father and she asks him for six pence. She asks him for the money to go and buy a gift. He knows why she's asking. And he knows that it is his money that will purchase the gift. And he will be six pence, none the richer, right? He, his value is not going to increase <laughs> because he spends, she spends his money to buy him a gift. And yet, though he is not enriched by it, he celebrates it nonetheless. He wraps his daughter in his arms and pours over her because of the gift that she offers, even though it was his money, it was his investment that purchased it. At the end of the day, he bought, he bought his own gift, but the fact that his daughter, out of love, brought it to him was all that mattered. That's what our good works are. It's not that God doesn't call us to do them. It's that we need to rightly understand what they are. And that the gift, that the joy, that the fullness, is that I get to bring to my Father what I did not deserve in the first place. And he will rejoice in it because he loves me. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. You see, it's, it's his investment that made a way for us. It's His work. It's not what we do. It's not what we have done or ever could do. It is what Jesus has already accomplished for us. You see, the, the standard is perfection. And Jesus Himself came, put on flesh, walked among us, and lived in perfection. He, he lived without sin. He lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve when he hung on the cross. And he did it in our place and for our sins so that we could have the life that we did not deserve, that we could not earn. We could have peace with God and we could know what it means to be reconciled to a perfect, loving, heavenly Father. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what it means to place our trust and faith in Jesus. So I want to invite you to bow your heads this morning and close your eyes. I want to give you an opportunity this morning, if you're here, What Jesus has done for you is enough. If you're here this morning and maybe you've felt disqualified or maybe you've just hesitated for whatever reason and today is your day and you say, Todd, 
today I want to trust in what Jesus has done for me and I want to give him my life. If that's you, can you just raise your hand? I'm not going to call you forward or embarrass you. Thank you there in the back. I see you. I just want to be able to pray with you, agree with you today and celebrate. Thank you up there in the balcony. I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you here in the back. Thank you on my right. Anyone else? I'll wait just a second longer. Thank you up in the balcony. Thank you. So here's what I'd like us to do. I want everyone in the room to pray along with those who raised their hand today or maybe you're watching online and God's doing a work in your heart. Pray this prayer with us this morning. We're just gonna place our faith in Jesus and what he's done. So let's pray this morning. Dear Jesus, thank you that you gave your life in my place for my sin. I put my trust in you today. And I believe that what you did is enough. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. From this day forward, I commit my life to follow after you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we celebrate with those that raised their hand this morning? Yeah. You know, the scripture says that when one person comes to repentance, that all of heaven rejoices. So if that was you today, if you raised your hand and you prayed that prayer today, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, the Lord, that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that you will be saved. So if you said that prayer this morning and you said it from your heart, I want you to know that all of heaven is rejoicing with you today, that there's a party in heaven for you because God has rescued you you today. So I'm so proud of you for making that decision. And if you would, do me a favor, whether you're watching online or whether you're here in the room, if you made that decision today, text the word Summit PA to the number 94,000. Uh, we want to follow up and help you begin this journey. Uh, it is the beginning of a whole new way of living and being in the world, and it is wonderful and beautiful, and we want to help you experience that in every possible way. So uh, text Summit PA to the, word, to the number 94000, and then just uh, respond to that text, all right? Uh, so here's what's going to happen now. I'm going to pray one final prayer of blessing over us, and then we're going to be dismissed. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Um, we, we need the gospel every day. This is, this is a message that never grows old for us because we, we need it all the time. I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. So uh, trust in him. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for your kindness toward us that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, we want to live lives in response to that great gift recognizing that we could never earn it, but knowing that we belong. We are children of God because you've made us so. So thank you that you came to our rescue. We love you, Jesus, because you loved us first. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, may God bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you give you peace.